Hello, and thank you for listening to Renewables, a podcast by Biostar, which aims to explore the current and future energy landscape in America. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Renewables. Thank you for tuning in this week. We have Mark Reedy with us this week who is a partner at Kilpatrick Townsend in Washington, D.C., and the chair of the Energy and Projects Finance Practice at Kilpatrick Townsend. Very impressive uh, career in the energy industry. Really excited to dig into both past and present. Mark, thank you for being here. Uh, thanks a lot, uh, David, for inviting me. Uh, look forward to our conversation. Yeah, it's it's uh, you have such an interesting background, and we kind of chatted a little bit before this, and there's some really interesting topics in here that I want to get to. But let's start, um, set the stage a little bit for our viewers and listeners. Tell us a little about your background and your 40-plus career uh, in the energy industry and sort of how you got to where you are today. Sure. So, uh, David, and your audience, I'm a... Uh... 45-year uh, uh, private placement and project finance lawyer, uh, international in scope um, in the energy, chemicals, and infrastructure areas. Uh, internationally, I've worked in over 65 countries, and I lived in Asia for over eight years, uh, more than six in India and more than two in China. And work throughout the entire Asia space, but um, throughout my career, I've worked on every continent. And um, and then domestically, uh, I, um, I work with every facet of uh, renewable and conventional energy, chemicals, and then infrastructure. That's great. It's a pretty impressive 65 countries you've worked in. Uh, or done work in that's that's really impressive, and um, you know forty plus career and really a, kind of a front row seat in the energy industry, um, and so I guess talk to us a little bit just about you know kind of the waves of renewables and um, what you see both a little bit in the past but also today. How do you see things related to renewables and the importance of renewables and growth of renewables in today's context? Well, um, maybe I should start that by going back a little bit and, you know, go back to where a lot of this began. It, it really started uh, germinating around the uh, uh, PURPA statute, the public Utilities and Regulatory Policies Act in 1978, which opened up the renewable power industry, or actually the power industry, to more renewable powers, and particularly cogeneration. So solar and wind were were just coming into uh, a being then in um, mm -hmm. commercial context, as was biopower, geothermal, and the like. And as a result of that, in um, 1979, a uh, uh, little bit earlier, the biofuels industry got going uh, with uh, generally was 
corn ethanol. And in 1979, I was one of the founders and for six years, the general counsel of the Renewable Fuels Association. And then uh, coming up to the more recently in 2001, um, I was one of the five founders and for 18 years, the general counsel of the American Council on Renewable Energy. So wow. RFA was and still is a leading association on the biofuel side and particularly the liquid biofuel side. And sure. now this has morphed the gaseous biofuels uh, in other associations. And then ACOR, the American Council on Renewable Energy represents all things renewable power hmm. and uh, both domestically and internationally. So with respect to your question, I think uh, the renewable energy industries uh, broadly, electricity and fuels uh, are growing uh, tremendously uh, despite um, you know, the emphasis in the current administration on, on fossil energy, uh, we can see this is where things have been for several, many years now with renewables and they're only getting larger and the job creation out of these industries is really what's gonna propel the energy industries of the future. Yeah, absolutely. You're, you're seeing a lot of job creation come out of these businesses, and I, I want to stay international for just a minute. Do you feel there's a, a, a leader? Is the United States the leader of this energy transition internationally, or are there other countries from your experience around the world where uh, perhaps there's more leadership with the transition, or they're doing it at a, a faster pace? Uh, I guess that can be answered multiple ways. The U.S. certainly has a role. It's been in a either a leadership role or a secondary role to China. Uh, but then a lot of the technologies have been developing over the years out of Europe. Mm -hmm. And the EU is a very, very strong player on developing these technologies. Uh, if you want to look in the electricity side, uh, China is probably leading on solar and wind mm -hmm. uh, as they try to ramp down on, on their coal-fired power plants, although those are still being built over there. Sure. Uh, in, in Europe, we're seeing a lot of the technologies that are developing what are very popular in the United States and trends, the sustainable aviation fuels, the renewable diesel, the uh, renewable natural gas, and the renewable hydrogen markets. Uh, those technologies come out of Europe quite a bit. Now, mm -hmm. uh, they might get uh, uh, integrated better in the United States. So the United States, as I see it, has been kind of the um, place to uh, ramp up a first commercial technology because we have a lot of programs uh, that will accept the technology risk at the government level, both government financing with loan guarantees or 
at the state level would, uh, if you were in the bioeconomy, would tax exempt municipal solid waste bonds. Mm -hmm. and those so, have helped germinate these these industries. Sure. Yeah, the financing obviously important, and you've built a, a career around that. Uh, you mentioned sustainable aviation fuel, which I think is fascinating. Uh, you also mentioned, you know, some U.S. kind of the government loan products, which I want to get to in just a second. But let's stay on the aviation fuel for a minute, because I think that's really fascinating. You know, obviously, air travel has become such a staple of our society. Uh, Pre-COVID, you're seeing a lot of people, you know, making one meeting business trips, um, you know, on an airplane or two flights to go and have one or two meetings and, and coming back. And perhaps, you know, the pandemic changes that temporarily or more longer term, perhaps not. Um, but but tell us about your work in the sustainable aviation fuel, you know, where that industry is going and how fast. So I got involved in this industry for sustainable aviation fuel probably 10 to 15 years ago and drafted and negotiated the first contracts. They generally came out of the um, freight carrying space for aviation, uh, but extremely important because if you look at transportation fuels generally, your largest market in the world is uh, aviation fuel hmm. generally. Your next largest market is marine fuel. And your third is vehicular transportation fuel. So you can see that this is large. To date, there's only in the range of 20 to 50 million gallons that are in production with a, a pre-COVID uh, consumption internationally in, in commercial, freight, and private air just uh, putting aside military of 82 billion gallons a year. The wow. projection is in the next five years or so, that'll be at about 135 billion gallons a year. Huge hmm. jump. And think about the big difference between how much is produced right now. And they're being produced from just a few projects. I've been involved in the financing on five of them that are hmm. either in construction or in production and are producing these fuels, uh, but I represent currently probably 75% of the world's uh, sustainable aviation fuel developers as they're building out portfolios of these projects. So these are still very early days, but the potential, as you can see, is huge. What is the waste stream or the feedstock that makes that, that fuel product? What, what is it and what makes it sustainable? So that's driven by the ASTM, the um, standards, and you have to get a pathway. So you've got to get your feedstock qualified and then your fuel qualified. And mm -hmm. so to date, it's been um, things like um, uh, the fogs, the uh, waste oils, you know, fats, oils, greases, things like mm -hmm. that wood, um, woody biomass of all types, uh, the organics of municipal solid waste, when you murph out the organics from the total waste stream and then turn that in to, to the final product, that's big. And then 
Another one is alcohol to jet, and that's through different ways to do it. Now, there's lots of new pathways that are being developed, which will require modifications of or, or an expansion of the feedstocks that can be used. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then a lot of it is also driven, will be even more so driven by the kind of regulatory incentives you can get uh, to help you uh, in the um, in the financing and ultimately the uh, uh, the marketing of the fuel and the rate of return to your investors and to be sure that your lenders can pay their debt service. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And you mentioned earlier, um, you know, sort of government-backed products that can help make these projects feasible. Are there USD or DOE? Um, do, do they play in that sustainable aviation fuel space? Do they have products you can use? And then I guess more broadly, just talk a little bit about how important, um, you know, USDA and DOE loan products are to these markets. So again, you're talking mainly, David, about first commercial technologies here. So you've got to look at where those programs are. Mm -hmm. So at, at USDA, you have a program called the 9003 program. It's an integrated biorefinery program. It can deal with uh, biofuels generally, biochemicals or renewable chemicals generally, and bio-based products. And now newly, although it's been there for a while, it's now actually expressed into the new rule, biopower. Uh, at the and so jet fuel can fit in there, but there's a two hundred and fifty million dollar senior debt limit, so you won't be able to build the the significantly large project, but we have used it and will continue to use it to move hmm. these product, projects along. The Department of Energy has a bigger program called the seventeen o three and if you're in a in a renewable space in it versus an advanced fossil, uh, you can get $4.5 billion. Uh, there's up to $4.5 billion available. Clean fossil has $8.5 billion and it's uncapped. So as long as you can go in with a request as high as you want, as long as the money's in place. And the, so that money's still in place uh, but you got to pay fees to the government as you go, which we're dealing with right now. We're trying to address that through Congress and the DOE and the White House to change, modify the program to make it work better. Hmm. And then at um, USDA, you're still up against that at funding lim limit of 250 million. Your other way to do it would be with a bond finance. And so the the waste products uh, set up perfectly for it. And the institutional market is more accepting of technology risk mm. than a commercial bank is. Sure. So but still you've got to protect against the technology risk. So when we do that, we wrap those projects with a technology risk insurance policy that I helped develop with an investment banker 12 years ago with AIG. And now it's morphed around to a lot of different uh, A to double A rated insurance companies. So you're, mm. you're getting both a protection on the technology risk, 
So if you got a hiccup in the technology, it'll pay out the debt service. Mm-hmm. Um, and it credit enhances like a loan guarantee would the, the debt. So you could probably, you can reduce it sometimes a hundred basis points. So you get, you're already at a lower finance with a tax exempt finance, but you can bring it down lower with this type of a policy with a, you know, a single A to a double A insurance company standing behind it. Those are the advantages of these programs because you're, you're dealing with the technology risk and you got to get through the first commercial project. Then you could start building a portfolio. And as long as we're working for about a year, then the banks will come in and start looking at it differently. Sure. Sure. Well, you're uh, sort of not me directly, but preaching to the choir to Biostar. We have a waste energy process um, and our, our largest commercial operation is being built right now. And uh, we've, you know, certainly for 10 plus years been struggling to, you know, bring the right capital mix of capital to those projects because they're, they're very expensive uh, and there is technology risk, as you mentioned. So, so you mentioned the insurance policies, that's really interesting. And you've brought a lot of different solutions into the marketplace and to your customers to help make projects a reality, frankly. Um, tell us about some of the others. I know in our previous conversations, you had mentioned an LCFS product, um, a feedstock product, a carbon capture product. So let's, um, we only have so much time. We'll, we'll kind of stay at a high level, but let's jump into the LCFS product. And if you don't mind uh, being uh, the teacher here for a moment, um, explain to our viewers and listeners what the LCFS market is, what that stands for, and a little bit about the marketplace. So it's um, it's it's found in three jurisdictions right now: California, Oregon, and uh, uh, British Columbia, up in Canada. Now, did I hear correctly that some legislation got passed uh, this morning in was it Minnesota or? Could be. I mean, uh, uh, I'll get. I'll I'll move to that. But first of all, the sure. low carbon fuel standard is LCFS, and yep. it's and in California where it's the most is the strongest um, uh, regulatory incentive for the for liquid and gaseous biofuels and for the use of them in electric vehicles. Also, a lot of people forget about that. Mm-hmm. Um, you um, that's your strongest market, and so there's other states. The state of Washington's been trying to get this through. Um, Nebraska, Iowa, South Dakota, and Minnesota. Now I hadn't heard that Minnesota had passed passed it, but it's active legislation. It also yep. is in New York and and in Massachusetts. So New York is a large driving public up there, just like California. So as the and then your your biggest potential here is Canada with what they call it's modeled after the low carbon fuel standard. It's called a clean fuel standard. And it's taken a while to get it up and going, but on June 1st of 2022, liquid fuel will be eligible for it. 
And on June 1st, 2023, gaseous fuel will be eligible for across all of the provinces. Wow. So then that begins expanding the market exponentially. Very interesting. So you are literally creating low carbon fuel and selling it into this market, uh, which is generating credits that are paid back to you. Is that is that fair and accurate? You're doing as a CI score that gets you your best value. That's a carbon intensity score. And the lower you can get it, the higher value you will get from the California Air Resources Board, CARB, that manages it. And subsequently in these other states too, in their respective. So I build my gas project or my, my low carbon fuel project uh, and there's there's a Clean Air Resources Board, CARB, that basically scores my project and tells me what my CI score is. And then that is how, that ultimately determines how much credit back I get. Well, what you will, or what you generally do, or there's four or five major companies out there that will do your scoring. And then others will do the auditing of that for CARB. And then CARB will certify it. They'll go through their own scoring and certify it. Now, you know, the, going back to the insurance side, the important thing is to be sure these things keep in place. So mm -hmm. we are developing with insurance carriers a uh, regulatory risk uh, protection policy that would you know, it has its beginnings in the political risk insurance that you can see from what used to be called the Overseas Private Investment Corporation, now the, the De Development Finance Corporation and the Multilateral Investment Guarantee Agency, the former being out of the U.S., the latter being a bank uh, insurance company out of the World Bank for international projects, both of them. And these insurance protect against political risk insurance. Hmm. Similarly, this is a risk insurance regulatory um, in focus. And it's we're trying to protect both the RINs, the Renewable Fuels Standard, and the LCFS. And then on top of that, the RECs, the Renewable Energy Certificates that are available for the electricity market. So the whole idea is to keep value in place so that if there's any government inroads, California is sure. California and re regardless of a Democrat or Republican administration uh, or legislature, it's pretty much going to stay in place. The danger there is that it doesn't get extended beyond 2030, but there are bills to extend it to 2035. On the RFS side, the danger is there are built into the law that came in in 2005, the ability to get exceptions and a state could get one or refiners could get them and they're called small refiner exceptions. And they came about in the last, in the, in the Obama administration actually with refineries up in Philadelphia mm. and they've morphed. Uh, and right now, then there's been a, uh, so the price tanked 
on the RINs when all of these were issued. And then they went up again when the Tenth Circuit ruled against three of them in Washington State area. And so um, that still has to go before the Supreme Court. So it hasn't done so yet. And uh, but the the rent prices up, but the whole idea is to protect the value of these because they're so important because these projects are big. They have um, a higher capex, uh, capital cost per gallon on the liquid side or per MMBTU on the gaseous side or per kg on a renewable hydrogen side. And so you need to, um, uh, you need these incentives because as much as we try to keep a client focused on keeping their debt service payments in their base price, whether it's mm -hmm. a rack price on a liquid fuel or a Henry Hub price on a gaseous fuel, it's hard to do that. And so you need to have these protections in place because when you look at the contracts, particularly the refinery contracts, because they're the obligated parties, they're gonna have these regulatory out provisions. And that means that if something would happen where there's a material inroad into the LCFS or the REN, or they were knocked out completely, mm -hmm. then you've got generally up to 60 days for the parties to come together and restructure the transaction or the off taker can exit and terminate the agreement, which then wow. puts the developer sure. in a covenant default on its loans and they've got a problem. Sure, so what I think you're saying at a really high level- The value there. Right, the, the highest level of what you're saying is whether it's a REC or a RIN or an LCFS credit, that's helping finance the deal. And if something happened from a regulatory or a, um, or a, a new law was passed, uh, you know, four or five years into the future, you could blow up your financing structure. Is that, is that oversimplifying it? Okay, yeah. That's correct. And, and so if you're gonna rely between the two of those, the state credit or the federal credit, particularly since the lion's share of this right now is a California um, market. Uh, the um, uh, the LCFS is going to be the best one to rely on, just because California is California. It's not going right. to probably get knocked out. So, you know, then it becomes the fine tuning on the contracts to. Uh, uh, to be, be sure you get the best value as a seller so that sure. you have the most revenue to be sure your debt service is timely paid and you've got a rate of return to to provide to your investors. Sure. Well, it's fascinating stuff. It's obviously really complex stuff. And uh, so, you know, in the event that there are developers out there who might be looking for partners and, and help, uh, you know, structuring these types of transactions. Obviously, Mark could be a resource for you. I want to get into one more topic here before we wrap up. Uh, we're coming sort of close to the end of the time here. But, um, 
you mentioned, you know, solar, wind, geothermal, and fossil fuels. And I think uh, our listeners would be interested to know from your perspective, you told me you had just closed a, a really large transaction on some oil wells in, in Canada, I believe. What does the future hold for oil? Um, you know, what, do you see, what do you see this market doing in the next five, 10, 15 years? Well, fa- um, the oil industry isn't just going to, in a snap of the fingers, disappear overnight. And right. in, in our lifetime, our kids' lifetime, I see it continuing. We will still have the internal combustion engines and, and the need for these fuels. They will transition. I mean, we're going through that transitioning process. Yep. I mean, if you look back, you know, where we had, you know, wood-fueled ships, then steamships, then oil-fired ships, and then as we're, you know, if you look at it kind of like that, we're in that kind of a transition. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, what, what'll what be interesting is the way this election is coming out, where it seems to be that uh, that uh, uh, Vice President Biden will become the president, and the Senate is, will stay Republican, and the House is, is, uh, is Democrat, and you're going to, but, but it's all tightened up, so it's sure. going to be interesting that they're all going to have to work together, but certainly this administration is going to be focused on incenting the development of renewable energy. Sure. Uh, Maybe not to the exclusion, but to the reduction of fossil energy. But there's still a play for these fossil industries. And, uh, but the, the most significant growth in the, in the near term to the long term is going to be in the renewable space. Yeah. And for everyone who's viewing, we are recording this on Thursday, November 5th. So the final uh, outcome of the presidential election has not yet been called. But as Mark mentioned, um, it certainly looks like I, I've been following the betting odds are certainly in favor of the former vice president right now. And uh, it's interesting, we're seeing the market react in a really positive way to potential gridlock uh, in D.C. So since we're, we're on politics, you, you pretty much answered the question, but um, you see an avenue here for like the extension of the federal solar tax credit and other incentive markets that are set to start uh, expiring, winding down or expiring? Absolutely. Uh- uh, I would think that you'll see uh, some kind of uh, uh, a stimulus. You've seen the stimulus in the right. in the last year, really focusing on getting people uh, stabilized while they've been on furlough or job loss. It's getting people back to work and and keeping business going. Yeah, I think as as we get that settled, we get the you know a vaccine and and this all calms down, we're going to see the stimulus going towards the renewable space. And the natural thing would be to extend the tax incentives and maybe create some new ones. You know, we haven't in the, in the biorefinery business, we haven't had uh, uh, an ITC like the electricity industry has uh, an investment tax credit since 
1978 and 80 tax acts that put them in place, 10% for energy and 15% for infrastructure, which I helped put those in place. And then um, they were sunsetted in 1986. And the electricity industries, starting with solar, were able to get the ITC and then a production tax credit. And then the biofuels got the production tax credit, but not ever have we gotten the uh, investment tax credit for the CapEx side, building the projects, a 30% right. of incentive. I think that could become a reality. Uh, certainly the gaseous fuels are fighting for it with a 30% anaerobic digester tax credit and a 30% nutrient recovery tax credit, which right now are in bills on the House side, which, you know, nothing's going to happen in this lame duck session on these bills that are there for energy to extend incentives. Right. They, incentives could be extended through an appropriations bill, but I think they'll be looked at quickly in the next Congress, and I think we'll see extensions. And I think we're going to see some some uh, creativity, like a standalone energy storage tax credit, which the industry has been fighting for, uh, which would be 30%. So not just integrating into a, a solar installation, but standing on its own or integrating into the grid for resiliency. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think you're going to see many other types of incentives. Uh, and I think keeping these government programs in place is very critical. And I've helped create off the side of my law firm, a group called the Alternative Fuels and Chemicals Coalition, which focuses on keeping all of the grant, loan, and loan guarantee money in place throughout the federal government. And we've identified over 55 of these programs that. Hmm these industries and the bioeconomy uh, greatly rely on. And then also in the electricity industries rely on it to other extents. And so I think those are gonna be, you're gonna see uh, expansions of that and the programs are gonna be made more workable. Wow, well, it'll certainly be fascinating to watch. We are definitely you know, keeping our finger on the pulse of those various programs you mentioned. Um, We've covered a lot today. I really appreciate your time. We've also talked about a lot of different trade organizations. So I'm going to make sure that my team has in our show notes some links to where people can go and find these various organizations that you've helped start and um, make what they are today. Um, Mark, before we sign off here, um, is there any way, how, how can our listeners and followers uh, follow you online or find you online? I want to make sure that um, we tell them that, and then we will sign off after what's been a really great conversation. And I can tell you, um, we haven't even scratched the surface. We've stayed at a high level, and uh, it's just really neat to, to talk with you. You're so uh, incredibly knowledgeable on all these topics, and um, you've been a great resource for our team certainly could be a great resource for some of our listeners and viewers. How can they find you online? And then we'll sign it off. Well, you can reach me on my LinkedIn, which just use my name, uh, Mark J. Yep. Reedy. Um, you can get me if you want to reach out to me because I've got multiplicity of slide decks that lay out all of the mechanisms, programs, and 
and structures that we use to get these projects successfully funded at uh, mreedy at kilpatricktownsend.com. Um, you can call me at my mobile number 703-201-6677 and uh, we could schedule a call or text me on that and um, uh, look up on our website at www.kilpatricktownsend.com and look at our energy team. I headed up and uh, we work in uh, uh, a multiplicity of different types of projects and private placements and tax structures. And uh, so, you know, that's how you can locate me. And, and again, if you want to schedule another time to talk in different financing topics or equity topics, kind of the, or the trends we're seeing out there, I'd certainly be glad to come back and, uh, and uh, discuss it with your audience. I will, I will take you up on that because we really did just sort of scratch the surface today, but it was a great conversation. Um, and we look forward to having you back on the show. Mark Reedy with Kilpatrick Townsend. Thank you so much for being here today and uh, have a good rest of your week, sir. Thank you very much, David. Take care. Bye-bye.